Good morning and welcome to Monday Morning Side. My name is Josh Kazali. I'm your host. Um, unfortunately, we usually post our live broadcast, but our live recording system is a little bit malfunctioned at the moment. So I'm going to announce our segments today. It's a great show. This is the April 3rd edition of Monday Morning Side. My first segment is all about the Red Balloon Learning Center, whose lease has recently been threatened to close by Columbia. Uh, it's covered by Isaac Stiefelman and Ashwin Marat. They talk with Anna Perna Schreiber, who is a parent who's affected by this. And um, it's a great segment. It's all about that, which has been a big rallying point for a lot of the Columbia community in um, talking about the way that Columbia impacts uh, the Morningside Heights area. After that, I have um, a brief segment from uh, former station manager Skyler Robin Birnbaum. Um, he's on the ground at Yankee Stadium for their second game against the uh, San Francisco Giants. He talked to fans. He covers the game. It's a lot of fun, and we're very excited about covering Yankees games here at WKCR. Tune into f- the Firing Lion this week on Wednesday and usually on Thursdays. Um, our sports department has been revitalized. Lots to be excited about. And the last segment I have for you is The Blue Jay, which we do in collaboration with The Blue and White Magazine. They just released their March issue. It's a great issue. Go read it. Um, but I talk with Mooney Solomon, who released uh, the great feature. It's called On the Record. You can read it along with her, as well as listen to her talk about it with me. Uh, it was a great conversation about um, historical markers of anti-blackness on Columbia's campus, um, which is a continual thing that has come into question um, and an important part of um, memorializing space and history, uh, especially in a place like Columbia. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can listen to Monday Morningside live every Monday from 8.30 to 9.30 in the morning uh, on wkcr.org and 89.9 on the dial here in New York City. Without any further ado, let's get into the Monday, April 3rd episode of Monday Morningside. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, this is Ashwin and Isaac from Monday Morningside on WKCR 89.9 FM. And in this week's episode, we'll be taking a look at a particularly controversial community issue, the closing of the Red Balloon Learning Center, a childcare center in West Harlem. Red Balloon was started by Columbia in 1972. After the 1968 protests at the university over the Vietnam War and the construction of a gym in Morningside Park, Columbia sought to improve its relationship with the community and created a child care initiative to help families in West Harlem. Red Balloon's curriculum focuses on helping children build social skills through play and problem solving, and it serves as a unique community of special needs children, low-income families, and Columbia affiliates, all while operating as one of the only affordable child care options in the neighborhood. For a long time, Red Balloon operated as a cooperative, meaning that if a parent worked in the classroom for 20% of the time their child was in attendance, they would pay substantially less in tuition. The main appeal of Red Balloon has always been its affordable nature and high-quality care. Families at Red Balloon pay almost $10,000 less per year than other daycares in New York City. And in the Morningside Heights neighborhood, the difference is closer to $15,000 per year. And this model worked for almost 50 years. Fast forward to July 2021, when Columbia sent a letter to former Red Balloon director Denise Fairman that they would be terminating its lease within months. The university then changed its policy and stated it would terminate the lease in August of 2023, triggering widespread protest. To learn about the current state of Red Balloon, we spoke with Annapurna Schreiber, the president of the parent board. 
Uh, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you guys for having me very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so just to get into background a bit, um, as we start off, can you introduce yourself uh, and talk about how you first got involved with Red Balloon and its leadership? Sure. Um, yeah, my I have two children. I have a six-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. Um, and my son turned three right before the pandemic. Um, so we were, you know, looking to transition him from his infant daycare into a preschool. Um, and it was very important for me, a couple of things. One was that one of um, his parents was nearby, um, near near the preschool, um, uh, just, you know, in case of emergency. And the, the other thing was that he went attended a preschool that reflected the community that he lived in and reflected our values as parents. So we toured um, several preschools and, um, well, and I should say, and also that we would be able to afford it, which um, <clears throat> is, is very tough because New York, um, you know, uh, childcare nationwide is in a sort of, in a crisis right now. It's extremely expensive for parents and yet workers um, tend to be, you know, not, not properly compensated. So um, we, you know, we toured several places and this was pre-pandemic and some of them had openings, some of them didn't. Most of them were out of our budget. Some of them offered some um, small amounts of financial aid. Um, when I toured Red Balloon, I was just immediately impressed with the diversity in the classrooms, the emphasis on sort of social emotional learning and play. Um, I love that it was near my, I'm a Columbia employee and it was near my office. Um, and it was within the range that we could afford with a small amount of financial aid that was offered to us. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, kind of going off of why you all were interested in Red Balloon, uh, do most parents or families that come to Red Balloon come from similar backgrounds um, in terms of like, affordability and trying to look for the best option for their for their kids in the area I, yeah i think that i think the two things that most families come in with is is this place um logistically afford uh, logistically possible for me in the sense that can i afford it do the hours work out for me um that kind of thing um and then the second thing is does it align with my values as a parent um, <clears throat> there are a lot of great preschools in New York. Um, you know, a lot of them in, in Harlem and the Upper West Side dismiss at 3.30. You know, I'm a, I work full time, so that, that wouldn't have been an option for me. Most of them were out of my price range, so that also is not an option. Um, so then it comes down to, you know, does this place, this, will this place reinforce the values I'm trying to lead with as a parent? So um, getting into some of the more specifics about Red Balloon and its service mm -hmm. business, um, what, uh, aside from uh, affordability, what kind of other specialized services or, um, you know, amenities does it have or provide that make it uh, uh, appealing, not just appealing, but, you know, um, life-saving for a lot of the, the families that uh, have kids enrolled there? Right. Um, yeah, so... I mean, one of the main things is the hours of accessibility. It's open from eight to six. Um, it's open year round. These are both extremely rare. They're kind of things we don't think about unless you're at that point in your life where you're looking for a preschool. But many schools are open sort of nine to two, nine to two, nine to two thirty, three thirty. 
Um, some of them offer extended hours for an additional fee. Um, a lot of them close over the summer. Um, they work on an academic year, even though most parents don't work on that schedule. Um, and of course, you know, a lot, some Columbia parents are an exception because they are academics. Um, um, but for someone like me, I'm an administrative worker. I work 12 months of the year. So does my husband. Um, we needed a place that could offer us full-time care. Um, and so that was that was extremely important. Um, one of the other really wonderful things about Red Balloon is it offers food at no additional cost. Um, preparation of lunches and breakfasts and snacks and all that can be very time consuming for parents. It can also be extremely expensive, especially recently as food costs have really gone up. Um, <clears throat> one of the really cool things about Red Balloon, I think, is that to me, it's really a microcosm of the Harlem community and of Morningside Heights. So we do have the children of tenured professors, um, people at the medical campus, people who make you know comfortable um, wages. And we also have families who come from the housing projects across the street, um, people whose children whose families are struggling financially. We the, um, They accept children with special needs, which is very rare for a preschool. A lot of preschools, I mean, they certainly don't advertise that they don't take children with special needs, but when it comes down to it, you know, they, um, say they can't accommodate that child. Um, so what's wonderful to me is that they really take kids from this really incredible cross-section of New York City. Um, and so I think diversity is often a sort of aspirational quality for a lot of preschools and daycares. At Red Balloon, it's, it is, it's just, you know, the lived experience of the children there. We have parents for whom um, the providing food is a great convenience. We also have parents who are struggling with food security in their homes and knowing that their child gets breakfast and lunch and a snack five days a week is really important to them. Um, that is absolutely exceptional among preschools. Very few of them provide food. Some of them provide it at an additional cost. They contract with a caterer and, you know, you can spend an additional five or $600 a month and, and have that as a benefit, but it's a very equalizing kind of force among the children. Um, and I think it reinforces the sense that, you know, we sit down, we break bread together, we're a community, we're a family. Um, it also offers some really beautiful amenities that come with the physical space and indoor gym, which is really nice for days when it's um, inclement weather and an outdoor play space, a garden, um, soccer, yoga, um, dance and music and foreign language classes. This is all part of, we don't charge parents anything additional um, on top of the tuition because our idea at Red Balloon is that every child is getting the same experience. Um, our teachers are, are just truly remarkable, incredible people. Um, the lead teachers are all New York State certified. Um, and our director has um, a doctor in education. And so there's just a lot of intentional, thoughtful, um, pedagogical, uh, experience that's going into the programming of the classroom. And there's just, you know, so much love and compassion and care for these children. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that all of the sort of um, benefits that you've described, whether it's the affordability or just, you know, relieving stress for parents, that's sort of been the mission since 1972, whenever it started. Um, but coming to the current moment that Red Balloon finds itself in with the lease with Columbia, uh, could you give us a little context for what 
the past two or three years have looked like uh, in dealing with the lease and Columbia University? Sure. Um, so I'm sure you know some of your listeners may know if they had followed the New Yorker article or several of the pieces that have been in the Spectator that the space was sort of donated by the university to Red Balloon um, as part of something called the Columbia Daycare Project in the 70s, where it was clear that there was not enough childcare, there was not enough affordable, accessible, excellent childcare. Um, and it came out of a sense that you can't have, you know, you can't have a functional university community that didn't offer childcare to its to its professors, its workers, its students. Um, and it's sort of remarkable because I think that what I found is that the changing atmosphere in the administration at Columbia is has landed us where we are today, which is that Columbia more and more seems like a real estate company that happens to have a university attached to it, as opposed to a university um, that was doing some of the expansion that we see with a lot of large institutions of um, higher ed. Red Balloon certainly seems to come out of a different era and philosophy and, and moral leadership, the university that doesn't exist here right now. Um, yeah, so they wanted to terminate our lease. Um, they won't really give us any clear answers on what their intentions are for the space, but the best thing that we've been able to come to without any clear answer is they seem to want it to develop a Columbia-owned and operated preschool that will be revenue generating for the university. And um, we've been told that, so the, you know, as I said, Red Balloon has a great cross section of parents um, from across, you know, Morningside Heights and Harlem. Um, but one of our big focuses and part of the reason that it's, you know, one of the more affordable daycares, it's, it's always been sort of middle-class and lower income families have been really the sort of the, um, the majority parents at the school and um we're also one of the only preschools of our caliber that accepts acs and hra vouchers which are childcare vouchers from the city for children from low-income families um and we asked the administration you know with this new preschool that you're intending to build will those um you know will those will you be accepting those vouchers and we were told, um, you know, basically in a sort of more eloquent way than I'm about to put it, but basically that those families would not be targeted for admissions. Um, so again, without clear answers from the university, it's hard to tell what they want to do with the space, but um, it seems quite clear that what will most likely happen is that it will be, you know, free or discounted child care for people at the top, um, you know, sort of uh, long tenured faculty or administration people making a lot of money kind of as a recruitment tool um, for people they want here. Um, child care is very expensive and it can be expensive even for families that are earning, you know, a good deal of money. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, the community that that has been so special and so central to Red Balloon in its 50 years is not the one that Columbia is looking to serve. Going along with the challenges that you've described for families, uh, we know that as a result of COVID, the childcare industry has definitely faced a lot of pressure and challenges relative to other industries. Um, and so how did the pandemic 
change the sort of day-to-day operations and the long-term plans of Red Balloon? I would say that what happened at Red Balloon is not remarkable. It was extremely commonplace. A lot of childcare facilities actually um, went under during the pandemic and are no longer operational. I would say that what happened is, you know, and we've heard this with other things, other social phenomena, um, that the pandemic didn't create them, it exposed them. So yeah, like I said, you know, many childcare uh, facilities went down during the pandemic. Parents were of care, of course, keeping their children home. Um, I think even after vaccinations were available, a lot of them were very reluctant to have their children in a um, in an environment where they'd be exposed to lots of other kids. Famously, children get very sick for the first two years of preschool and pre-pandemic or, or daycare, just you're exposed to a lot of viruses. Um, children under two were too young to wear masks. Um, so the industry, um, you know, it sort of collapsed. At Red Balloon, as I said, it wasn't a remarkable situation. We were doing what every other, whatever other place was doing. Um, it's hard to remember now, but at the beginning of the pandemic, masks were like $14 each. Those cheapo masks we can get for free in most places now were extremely hard to come by. All of that protective gear was, you know, very difficult for us to get. We did all of that. We had to get all of these sort of CDC approved cleaners to disinfect the place daily. Our teachers did all of that work, um, you know, which is not their sort of job regularly, but it just required a really Herculean effort to keep the place open. Um, And then we did have some exceptional and really tragic events. Um, One of our longtime teachers, Anne Hershkowitz, who was my child's um, teacher at the time, and just this really dedicated, incredible um, lead teacher for our three-year-olds who had been at the school for something like 20 years. She passed away during the Christmas um, break, which was enormously difficult for our community. Um, Up until recently, I haven't really been able to talk about it without crying. This was just my child's first exposure to loss and um, my hearing fell off. Uh, It was extremely painful. We um, had a newly hired director who got extremely sick um, from some um, very serious um, life-threatening issues. She was forced into retirement a few weeks after she started. So we definitely, you know, in addition to the nationwide bad luck that childcare was experiencing, we were experiencing much more than that. Um, And it was really really difficult and very painful. Um, And it was also kind of incredible to see people come together and, um, you know, to see parents pitching in and everyone rallying around to support the school. Um, Because, you know, I I think one of the most sort of um, infuriating and insulting charges that Columbia keeps lobbying at Red Balloon is that we have in some way been providing substandard care. And I always have two responses to that, which is that, first of all, Columbia doesn't collect any qualitative data on on preschools that are affiliated with it. So they have no, you know, this is just um, slanderous. It has no no basis in reality. And secondly, it's really insulting to parents because I can tell you from personal experience, whether parents are making $500,000 a year or whether they need a voucher to help pay for childcare, Parents are loyal to their children first, not to a preschool. So if we're rallying around a preschool and trying to save it, it's because we believe in that place. It's because it's taken care of our children and provided the love and kind of care that um, 
that we think is is extremely important and it's been an important part of our children's lives. You mentioned trying to work with Columbia administration officials. Um, on this show, we're really interested in learning about the relationship between Columbia University and the surrounding community. So we wanted to ask what the sort of nature of communication has been like between Columbia and Red Balloon. Um, well, we found out about the termination of the lease through a certified letter that was sent to Red Balloon a week before school started in August. There was no phone call or any kind of communication with the new director. Um, our dozens of emails and attempts to have a meeting with Columbia were unanswered. Um, not just from from ourselves as the board and the director of Red Balloon, but also from the parents at Red Balloon, including several professors and, and other um, essential staff of the university. Um, we finally did have a meeting um, with Dennis Mitchell, Amy Rabinowitz, Shaley Murray, and Lofton Flowers. Um, the only reason we had that meeting though is they received a lot of pressure from Community Board 9 to meet with the board. Um, before that meeting, we were told several times, like they would respond to emails just saying, we're not going to meet with you. We're not interested in meeting with the parents. We're not interested in meeting with the board. Um, so that was the one meeting we had. And um, I can tell you that our elected officials have all gotten back to me and said, it's remarkable. They're literally just not corresponding with us. Um, there's no... Um, no sense that these are elected officials who represent the community and they at least deserve a conversation. There's been none of that. Um, so it's been extremely disappointing. It's been extremely disappointing. So because I think, um, you know, I think about a lot, you know, what the role is of a university. And of course, it's to educate young people. Um, but you know, these are nonprofit institutions and they're granted that nonprofit status predicated on the belief that they serve the greater good and that um, I don't I don't know that you can serve the greater good if you're not willing to be a part of the community in you know in which you reside um, I don't know that you can do any greater good if you're not concerned with the welfare of children and I don't know that you can do any greater good when you're not concerned with the lives of women, because, um, you know, unfortunately, when accessible, affordable, reliable childcare is not available, it's women who suffer the most. Um, even in the case where the woman may be the breadwinner or she's the one who's more highly educated um, in a couple, it's she's also the one who's most likely to have to leave her job if there's no childcare available. Um, and, you know, again, you know, I just, it's really distressing to constantly receive emails from the administration touting some, you know, oh, Women's Month reading or, you know, six amazing women of color at the university or whatever, when I, it's very obviously for show and there's no real entrenchment in those values because to, to really care about that stuff, you have to walk the walk. Um, and to take a, one of the few full-time, full-year, affordable um, childcare 
institutions away from the community and then say that you care about um, women of color is is laughable and false. Yeah, uh, I we can sense that like the relationship is not very sort of transparent or um, clear cut. What but, what we've heard from a lot of past guests is that you know Columbia, the, the overarching theme is that Columbia kind of just says like, "Hey, we're doing this." Yeah. Make your plans because it's happening, and and we're not interested in following up or um, adjusting uh, for your guys's benefit or um, changing our behavior at all based on your situation. Right. That's that's very much been our experience. Right. Um. So, kind of assuming the worst, um, what happens um if red balloon if the lease is terminated if you're forced to close, um, what other are are there any other options available for families um that uh, currently enroll their kids there um and i i don't want to uh, ask you personally but i mean for you for all of the other families what is at stake mm. okay um well i mean i think i think so much is at stake i mean so for me personally my daughter is actually aging out of red balloon so um if the school were to close, it it um, seems weird to say it doesn't affect me personally because it feels very personal. But my my child will will no longer be preschool aged. Um, but um, so for our other families, um, I mean, there are you know I I don't want to I don't want to make it sound as though there are not other excellent um, early childhood education institutions here. There are, um, and some of our parents. You know, childcare, the cycle is usually that by um, March or so, you should know where your kid will be in September. Um, so some of our parents have made arrangements at other preschools. Most of them, I would say, have done so under duress. Um, it was they were kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, you know, at some point, you, it's, it's very difficult to, to wait. Because if, you know, things being the way they are, if you wait too long, you may not be able to find a spot. Um and a lot of those places are great. You know, they're, I, I think that, you know, our, our stance has always been that parents need options. It's not necessarily this place is better than that place or anything. I, Red Balloon was the best place for my children, for my family, for our needs. Um, and I think most of our parents would agree with that for, for their own families. Um, I, I, I know in one case, there is one young professor who's a mother at our preschool who is a you know she's like I said she's sort of junior in her career and on, on the younger side for faculty um and but very much sort of considered a rising star and she this how this situation has really caused so much distress for her to be a faculty member at an institution that would treat red balloon this way that she has started looking at um other you know employment in other universities um and i don't know i don't want to say anything more than that because it's sort of you know confidential to her family and all of that but um so you know i know that it has really changed the way a lot of people feel about columbia um and their relationship to the university um and then on the more concrete level we have several families who i think 
unfortunately are really not sure what they're going to do. They, these are the families that whose children, um, you know, they use the HRA ACS vouchers. They're not accepted at any other Columbia preschool or daycare. Um, and they are, um, there are certainly other preschools that take them, but not the ones within the Columbia name, within the Columbia umbrella, really. Um, and so I think for some of those families, you know, they're not really sure what they're going to do. Um, Columbia has not offered them any kind of compensation or, you know, to pay for childcare for a year for those families while they figure things out. There's also the children with special needs at our, um, at our school who, um, and we have, you know, we have um, one child with a tracheostomy. We have had children with juvenile diabetes. We've had kids with nonverbal autism. Um, these are conditions that require accommodation and they require, you know, I think more than accommodation, they require a school that is motiva motivated and energized to cater to these children and to have integrated classrooms and to provide the medical support that they need. And I can tell you my, my um, coworker on the board, her child has a tracheostomy and she said Red Balloon was the sixth or seventh preschool that she called and none of the other ones would even offer her a tour. They told her right off the bat that they wouldn't be able to accommodate her child. So <clears throat> for those parents of children with special needs, I'm really concerned. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, and I think one of the things, um, you know, sort of taking a long view, one of the things that attract people to Columbia as an institution, you know, it's a world-class research institution, but also <clears throat> they want to come here to be part of New York City. And when we think of New York, we think of this vibrant, um, this vibrant, vital city, not block after block of corporate empty buildings and Columbia has so much unused real estate. It's unbelievable. Like they could have, they could open their own childcare facility in any of these other buildings. They could have moved Red Balloon to another building. Um, but for whatever reason, that's not part of the plan. And so, you know, it's very, when, whether you have a child who's preschool aged or not, it losing red balloon is lost to the community because it is part of the history of of this community it is part of the vitality of the community um you know we don't people don't want to come to a place where it's just like building after building of sort of you know classrooms it's like they want to come to a place that supports small businesses and has restaurants and coffee shops and childcare and libraries and parks and all of the things that are integral to a human experience. And this um, sort of anodyne experience that you get now on 125th Street, where it's just these big modern blocks of buildings and the human factor seems to have been subtracted from, from them is really depressing. And it's, um, you know, I went to university at downtown at NYU and the life and culture um, of the city are so important to your experience as, as someone who is a student or a worker at Columbia. And to see that being decimated because of the this sort of voracious appetite for real estate and an ever-growing um, endowment that is not spent on employees is just, speaks to the sort of moral rot at the heart of the administration.
Yeah. Um, as we sort of come to a close, if could you talk about uh, ways for the local community to get involved um, in the coming weeks and months ahead? Sure. Um, and I, I guess I would also just like to say, first of all, that as I'm speaking of Columbia in this way, I want to also just say I have met some of the most remarkable young people, students, professors, and administrators who really care about the situation and have been supportive from day one. And when I was 18, it would be hard for me to imagine, you know, getting fired up about a preschool closing, but the number of undergraduates and other people associated with the university has just been really beautiful and amazing. We had a carpenter call the university. He's one of, he's in a, he's a Columbia employed carpenter who works on one of the new buildings and was just saying they have so much real estate. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, people have just been coming out of the woodworks. We had a resident from um, the apartment complex attached to Red Balloon who said that she, while she doesn't have children herself, the thought of not waking up every morning to the children like laughing and playing outside was something that really bothered her. Um, and there's just been so many beautiful efforts throughout the community to help us. And it, all of that is so, so deeply, deeply, deeply appreciated. I didn't think that a little preschool would would be able to find, you know, momentum in in the bigger space and conversation about the university, but it has, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I would say you can email me. Um, I'm at annapurna.potluri007 at gmail. Um, spread the word about our situation. We have um, an article in the New Yorker that came out recently that, that really documents the case well. The Spectator has been incredible in their coverage of Red Balloon. Um, please you know, pass that information along. And I think maybe one of the most important things people could do is to contact the new professor, excuse me, the new president of Columbia, the president-elect, the uh, Baroness Shafiq, um, and this, you know, this would actually, the closure of Red Balloon would happen under her watch, actually, because it would be in August. And I think as a as a woman of color, um, she can make a statement about the moral leadership she wants to bring to the university by keeping the school open. Um, there is, I believe, a um, some kind of um, march or something that's being planned in the next few weeks. And if you email me, I can kind of keep you updated on that. Um, and I would just say, keep spreading the word, keep writing letters, um, and also contact your elected officials and tell them why that this is important. Because as I mentioned, you know, many of them have been incredibly supportive of us, um, but there's a lot going on in the world and it's easy to lose track of this little preschool. So I think that they need to be reminded that to keep the pressure up. Yeah, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. Really thank you guys both, I really appreciate it. For those interested in getting involved, Columbia student groups and Red Balloon families will be hosting a rally on campus at Low Steps this Thursday, April 6th at 6 p.m. We hope that you've enjoyed this segment and that you remain engaged with this important community issue. Until next time. Live here at Yankee Stadium, as the Bronx Bombers are taking on the San Francisco Giants in the rubber game, of their first series of the season. Today's starters are Johnny Brito for the Yankees. He's going to be making his major league debut and Ross Stripling for the Giants. The Yankees are looking to rebound and get back over 500 on the season after dropping the second game of the year to the Giants. 
uh, 7 to 5. Here on KCR, we've got all the action for you, all the storylines will catch you up. And we'll also take you inside the stadium and tell you what it's like uh, being a fan, he fan here at the third game of the Yankee season in 2023. A special moment came in the top of the first, just on the first batter. Johnny Brito, making his MLB debut, strikes out Lamont Wade Jr. for his first Major League K. Shortly thereafter, a 10-pitch at-bat from Michael Conforto sent a fly ball into shallow center field where Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, a new transport into center field, um, we all know him, playing shortstop mostly last year, had a few defensive woes that forced him to look for a new position. Playing center field today, his first time of the season, got tested on the second batter after a 10-pitch at-bat. Uh, shallow, shallow center field, it dropped quickly, but he was able to make the catch and the Yankee faithful gave him a nice hand afterwards. Take a listen. The first big boom of the game came on a 1-0 pitch in the bottom of the third inning to who else but Aaron Judge. A line drive into the first couple rows of uh, the seats in left put the Yankees up 1-0. Just two batters later, after an Anthony Rizzo single, Giancarlo Stanton absolutely destroyed a baseball, sending it 485 feet just left of dead center field over Monument Park, over the batter's eye, and into uh, where, the, where the fans are in center field. Um, a pretty amazing feat, 117 miles per hour off the bat. Listen to the crowd's reaction. It appeared as though the long ball was contagious in the bottom of the fourth inning. Backup catcher Kyle Higashioka stroke one to left field, putting the Yankees up four to nothing. That's Kyle Higashioka's first home run of the year. At this point, I ventured into the stadium to see what was going on with fans, see what was going on with concessions. Let's give you a quick little tour around the stadium. I'm here standing uh, where they sell the 99 burger, recently became the 199 burger due to popular demand. How quickly did it sell out today? Right before the third inning. We had so many orders. Um, we already we ran out of buns and cheese, matter of fact. So we had to wait. For wow. Food. Yeah, like crazy. It was so hectic. Like, we're getting, we started from one order, and then it come, like, get multiple six orders, like, out of nowhere. The 99 burgers are great. We're selling out every day. Like, four days straight, five days straight, sold out. We're in section 237, bottom of the sixth inning. Uh, I'm here with... Uh, Hannah and, uh, and uh, uh, Tommy. And this is your first baseball game. Correct. How do you first like it? Uh, we spent a while trying to get fries, but other than that, it's been pretty good. It's not good. The Giants are losing. <laughs> they keep scoring home runs. Whoever is pitching is not doing a good job. I'm very disappointed. I agree with her assessment. How do you like the view from out here, Section 237? I like it a lot. I always like sitting in the bleachers when I go to Yankees games. I always end up sitting in the nosebleeds. But Giants, their stadium, which is now called Oracle Park, which I have beef with, I prefer the name AT&T Park, has better views. So when you sit in the nosebleeds there, you get a nice view of the water. But I like the bleachers at the Yankees game. What about getting to the stadium? How did you get to the stadium today? Well, 
Well, we walked down to 110th and Central Park West, and we had to take the C to the D because the B's not running on the weekend. But it was a very smooth ride. We ran into Columbia people on our way here. We love WKCR. Now we do. I agree with that. I also caught up with a few fans regarding the pitch clock. By the way, if you're at the stadium, the pitch clock is now located uh, either directly under the scoreboard on the bottom left hand and bottom right hand side, or also on the backstop in between behind home plate and the Yankees dugout and the visitors dugout, uh, two places uh, on the backstop. Uh, Catching up with fans about the pitch clock though, pretty much went down the line 50-50, some against, some for. Those for it claim that the pace of play and the increased action uh, makes the game a lot more enjoyable to watch, while those against claim that the concession lines take up too much of their time at the stadium and a higher proportion of game time is cut into. As the game went along, the Yankees scored two more runs in the bottom of the seventh, the first one off a sack fly on the bat of Anthony Rizzo, driving in Volpe with one out, making it 5 nothing, and then a wild pitch scoring Glaber Torres from third base with two outs, making it 6 nothing. Colton Brewer then came in the game and threw two scoreless innings, finishing off a 6 nothing victory for the Yankees. The game took two hours and 27 minutes, no doubt thanks to the new pitch clock. After the game, we heard from manager Aaron Boone on how Johnny Brito threw five scoreless innings in his major league debut. I think just pound the strike zone, you know. Even, you know, we're getting a little nervous there that first inning. His stuff was really good. He was in the strike zone. They kept having spoiling pitches, though, and having some long at-bats, and then... Uh, Davis gets the hit off him, and now all of a sudden he's, that pitch count's driving up a little bit, and we're you know a little thin down there today. So, um, but he kept pounding the strike zone, had good stuff with his with his fastball at both his four and two seam, and that really good changeup. He was able to land the breaking ball enough too for strikes to get back in some counts. But um, more of what we've seen, you know, a very at ease out there, very comfortable, field the ball, field his position well, um, and. Just just a really good performance, an important performance for us when we needed a little bit of length when you know he's not all the way built up even yet. How do you feel seeing Higashioka get a home run today, especially uh, last year, last season, when it took so long uh, yeah. to get his first? Yeah, he's capable of that. You know, he's, he's got real power, real. Um, so, you know, anything Higgy does... Um, I won't be surprised, and then obviously, you know, what he's able to do, you know, along with Trevi behind the plate is 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 tremendous, but he's capable of those kind of things. When he gets hot, he's, he's dangerous with the bat. That shuts the book on a 6-0 Yankees win over the San Francisco Giants, taking their opening series of 2023. Next up, they face the Philadelphia Phillies Monday night at the stadium. Nestor Cortez will be on the mound. Skylar Raven Birnbaum, WKCR 89.9 FM at Yankee Stadium. I'm here today with Mooney Solomon, who is a senior editor at the Blue and White and a junior at Columbia College. How are you doing today, Mooney? I'm doing well, Josh. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you in the studio today. Mooney's going to be reading her es- her feature-length essay, uh, on the record, uh, it was just published in the recent edition of The Blue and White, released in the month of March, just about a week ago. Um, if you want to read along online, you can find it on 
theblueandwhite.org. You can read along with Mooney. She's going to be reading an excerpt from it. Um, you can also find the rest of the March issue there. It's a good issue. A lot of good reads on there. Um, and without any further ado, I'll let Mooney take it away. On April 19th, 2022, Reuters ran a feature on the university's newly announced historical markers project titled Columbia University to Publicly Mark Its Historic Ties to Slavery and Racism. The piece included statements from Ty Jones, a Columbia professor and historian of social movements in the 20th century. Jones teaches the seminar Columbia and Slavery and spearheaded the commemorative project. Historical markers acknowledging the university's history of slavery and anti-black racism, he announced, were to be placed in Fernald, Hartley, John Jay, as well as in 50 Haven Avenue, formerly known as Bard Hall, at the Irving Medical Center. As a result of President Bollinger's university-wide review following the May 2020 murder of George Floyd and in collaboration with the President's Commission on the History of Race and Racism at Columbia University, the University Libraries, and the Columbia University and Slavery Project, the Historical Marker Project's advocates aspire to spread awareness about how the histories of these residence halls hold continued importance for Columbia. Research for the Historical Markers Project emerged from the Columbia and Slavery Seminar. The course, which has been taught by Jones, Eric Boner, and Elizabeth Blackmar, among others, offers a flexibility and collaboration uncharacteristic of history classes at Columbia. Student interests guide the learning and knowledge production process, regardless of prior experience in archival research. People come to this class who are already interested in thinking about Columbia critically, Jones told me. They want it to be better. They want to learn more about it. They want people today to know about the past here. Since the seminar's first iteration in 2015, discoveries have transformed the perspectives of its professors and students alike on the historic association of Columbia's campus and its affiliates with slavery. For example, the first time Jones taught the class, Jordan Brewerton, CC17, identified over 50 digitized advertisements for wanted fugitive slaves owned by Columbia affiliates, making clear the investment that such actors had in maintaining slavery. The course also enabled Olga Plata Aguilera, CC23, to hone the skills and experiences she needed in order to practice descendant-led archaeology. She employs this method to help undo the historical harms of the field and to do internal work as a first-generation Latina student contending with her own relationship with the university's discriminatory foundations. After Plata Aguilera took the class in the fall of 2021, Jones selected her alongside three other former students to contribute to the Historical Markers Project in its early stages. The initiative was part of Jones's push to make the research conducted in the Columbia and Slavery Seminars more accessible to the public. Alongside Jones and Plata Aguilera, the team includes Vice Provost and University Librarian Ann Thornton, Columbia and Slavery Postdoctoral Research Fellow Joshua Morton, Tommy Song, CC20 Journalism 22, GSAP Doctoral Student Charlotte Caldwell, Stella Casabue, CC22, and Trey Greeno, GS2022. 
Jones thought it was important to include past students given their first-hand experiences in the dorms and their understanding of students' concerns regarding Columbia's impact on the surrounding community. Each student took responsibility for one residence hall marker or initiative. Unlike the other students in the cohort, Plata Aguilera focused on Barnard's campus because her research centered on Zora Neale Hurston's challenges with residential life during her time as both an undergraduate at Barnard and a master's student at Columbia. The initial story of Barnard's housing, Plata Aguilera explained, is one of absence. She analyzed Hurston's time at the university and examined the wider lack of historical knowledge concerning the black women who followed in Hurston's footsteps, specifically those who began applying to live in Barnard residence halls in the 1950s and 60s. How do you make a residence hall marker when there's no physical place where they lived because either they were denied housing explicitly or because they couldn't afford it, Plata Aguilar asked. The three undergraduate Columbia dorms were more straightforward to research. John Jay's story centers on the paradoxical status of the building's namesake, both an abolitionist and a slave owner. Hartley's focuses on Langston Hughes's experiences of anti-Black racism while attending Columbia. Fernald's contextualizes the 1924 cross-burning committed by the Ku Klux Klan on Fernald Lawn as a premeditated attack against Frederick Wilson Wells, a Columbia law student and one of the first black students to reside on campus. It also highlights Columbia's decision to formally introduce segregation in response. Researching the histories of these halls have posed different challenges. Stella Kazabue, one of the recent alumni on the Historical Markers team, explained that the university's archives perpetuate the historical biases of their curators. Certain details about Columbia's history of anti-Black racism and connections to slavery, she said, are significantly harder to find than others. For example, after a discussion with Professors Jones and Blackmar, Kazabue decided to research the Columbia Maid Strike of the 1970s, which responded to anti-Black behavior from the majority wealthy white male students who relied on their labor. However, most of the information available on the subject in the Columbia archives exists in the form of articles published by the Columbia Daily Spectator, which preserve only the perspectives of said students. Though information on the strikes exists, Columbia's archives demonstrate a lack of effort in preserving the maids' perspectives. Kazabiwe managed to piece together parts of the strikers' stories from documents stored in the New York Times and the NYU Tenement Library archives. Students in the Columbia and Slavery Seminar found the scope of their research limited by the silences in Columbia's archives. The art of historical preservation is very elitist and rooted in white supremacy, Kazabiwe explained. To deem something worthy of historical preservation means that this voice is important enough that future generations would benefit from knowing about it. Indeed, most students ended up researching white men. As one of the few black students in her seminar, Kazabiwe felt an imperative to do the black woman research when her peers chose topics with more accessible information. The disparity in the availability of archival material between white men and black women is a direct consequence of the latter being overlooked in archival work, causing student researchers, in this case, to avoid them in favor of easier work. The Columbia Maid Strike was important to Kazabiwe as she wanted to explore narratives of black women at Columbia beyond simply their oppression, instead focusing on the efforts that they have made to overcome it. 
While her research was emotionally taxing compared to her peers, Kazabiwe asserts that it was worth it because of her belief in finding more information on Black women at Columbia. Columbia's archives have gaps in other notable areas, especially regarding its early history. The university has moved twice since it was founded as King's College in 1754, and its Morningside location is now the third in the school's history. It was thus difficult to locate structures or graveyards, for example, relevant to the enslaved people connected with the university. Columbia having moved twice has meant the loss of a very significant part of the early archives, which didn't make the move, Jones said. He, Morrison, and Plata Aguilera all suspect that this is largely how the university has avoided conversations about its legacies in anti-blackness and slavery. Soon researchers have, however, persisted in uncovering the enslaved labor that cultivated the land prior to Columbia's installment in Morningside Heights, as well as the slave-owning families who owned that land and would go on to become Columbia affiliates. Even though Columbia was not here yet, we know that this was farmland, pasture, and orchard land worked by enslaved people, Jones said. I would love to see a monument telling that history. Every year, in concluding the Columbia and Slavery course, students collaborate on a list of demands, suggestions, recommendations that are presented to the president of the university. After, a formal email summarizing student presentations hits the inbox of the office of the president, following up on this list. Past demands have ranged from curriculum reform to even removing the names Columbia and Barnard from the institutions but the most consistent demand has been to simply increase awareness among the Columbia community about the history of the campus, in particular, the names that emblazon its edifices. I am back now with Mooney Suleiman, the writer of On the Record. Uh, it's a great piece, Mooney. Thank um, you. Thank you for reading it. Once again, if you want to read the rest of the article, that was just about the first half. You can find it on theblueandwhite.org. It's in the March issue. It's a feature. Uh, you can read the rest of the March issue. It's a good issue. We're both a little biased, but um, <laughs> I think it, it's a good one. Um, I guess I want to start off, Mooney. I want to ask, you know, where did you begin on this project? Um, how did you decide to cover this, what is a pretty... A monumental task of trying to tackle uh, this problem that the university has? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my curiosity started right when it was announced. So this is like April 2022. I think I saw it in a Columbia email. And over the next semester, I started to wonder about um, the space and our relationship to it, but also like specifically what happened to the project. And so I started doing more in-depth research in December of 2022 and then started to actually like work on getting interviews and going a little bit deeper into the archives myself by, I want to say, January and February. And the decision to take on such a topic is very close to me as a Black student at Columbia and considering the ways that Black students navigate this campus, not only on... A, a physical level, but also socially with the relationship that we create and what this university means to us in terms of representation. And so uncovering these stories, which was not entirely my work, it was thanks to a lot of the people I interviewed, was very pivotal to 
thinking about that on a much more critical level than I think I've done in the past like three years that I've been here. Right. And I think that this question of how to, you know, market with monuments, I think is really interesting. And it reminds me of like, I think on one of my first weeks at Columbia, we had um, this, like, as a part of our NSOP orientation, we were shown this, like the plaque that they have. Um, It's over by John Jay on Columbia's campus that just says like, this is the unceded territory of the Lenape people. And it's like, I think it's really interesting the way that we relate ourselves through these historical markers. I guess, what about the monuments themselves do you find interesting? I think it's interesting that you mentioned the um, land acknowledgement marker, because that was something that was definitely on my mind when thinking about these monuments in general. I think Columbia's campus has a various way of, or various ways of um, commemorating or let's just say symbolizing their history. We have the Hamilton and Jefferson statues. We have the land acknowledgement. We have the Federico Garcia Lorca um, plaque that's inside of John Jay. But specifically what interests me as I was working on this article was which ones are visible and which ones are not. And what does that say about Columbia's values? So for example, the Jefferson and Hamilton statues are very big, very visible Mm -hmm. right outside these buildings that we use very frequently. But, for example, there's a Langston Hughes plaque that already exists, but it's on, like, the top floor of Hartley and says nothing about his um, negative experiences at Columbia and instead just commemorates the his contributions to the Harlem Renaissance. So kind of taking this comparative lens about, like, what different monuments look like and what do they, um, what do these symbols talk about ha- was something that was very... It was a very critical question to what I was looking into for this. Right. And that question of visibility, I think, is really important. And, you know, even with that land acknowledgement, like there's like a huge Columbia logo at the bottom of it, which is a little ridiculous. And you come to this conclusion at the end, which is about what they actually ended up doing, which is these digital markers. Mm -hmm. And I guess, how do you relate to those? Because there's something so different about Um, you know, like something that's shown on a screen compared to, you know, like a physical presence on campus like those Hamilton and Jefferson statues? I think that's a really good question. And that was, in doing my research, that was like the biggest question I had about formatting because I think for me, I made the initial association that if they're digital, that must mean that they're temporary. Mm -hmm. Like I associated physical markers with a sense of, permanence and seriousness that I didn't think was going to be illustrated in the same way as digital markers. But in talking to, for example, Professor Jones and some of the interviewees, I came to, I don't know if it's a like a ready conclusion, but I was able to acknowledge that also digital markers can be easily edited for including even more information or taking in feedback from the um, community should it be necessary, and also considering that um, maybe they might be more visible in a digital platform as opposed to plaques that can be so small Mm. and unvisible to the eye when moving around places like Fernald Lounge, which was one of the first places they were established. I think for me, I still, and even the interviewees, I noticed that there was still maybe a little bit of 
tension or trying to figure out like further on will these be like um they're both physical but i guess what i'm trying to say is like more like plaques right versus digital markers um and i think that conversation is really interesting mm. um and i think that both have its pros and cons and i was more able to recognize that now than i think i was able to when i first um dove in a few days ago it was ivy day the ivy league released all the decisions uh and a lot of people got into columbia i guess what would you say to a person of color who got in and is trying to envision themselves at this university yeah so first of all uh, congratulations like you're beating the odds um but I would say re- reflecting on how I felt when I first got into Columbia, I, I want to say that there is a very, there is a community to be found um, amongst people of color at Columbia. I know for me that is through associations like the BSO and the ASA, or which is the Black Students Organization and the African Students Association here on campus. Um, however, I also want to say that through, you know, writing this article, it reminds me of the idea that like the Ivy League nor Columbia will really solve a lot of problems that we think can be solved through academic success. There are still a lot of issues at Columbia, like beyond what I have even found, like in the day-to-day instances. And I think I would just advise for students of color to keep that in mind, that um, the marginalizations that might exist for you now don't necessarily go away just because of going to a school like Columbia. But at the same time that or at the same time, if you look for it, there are communities and people on campus that can really help you feel as if you have some form of space here, whether it's the Black Student Organization or other racial or ethnic affiliated groups here on campus. Um, those are the people you can go to when the experiences here and the discriminations here can feel a little bit too much. And I think that if I had not had groups like that, or if I didn't find people like me in the stuff I like to do, such as journalism or my majors in sociology and English, I think I would have a significantly harder time here. And thinking one year to graduation it's those connections that i've made here that i really want to keep thank you so much for sharing your article with us and talking to me thank you josh it's been great